Welcome to Aspect Radio. I am Ben Flanagan, and this time joined on the phone by Corey Kraft. So, Corey, it's been a while since we've recorded, since we did a summer movie preview, and we have the entire month of May behind us now. And we're here in June, and the summer is going on. We're still in the first half of it, but we've seen several of these blockbusters, these tentpole releases, Avengers, Mad Max, and several other big movies that we were obviously looking forward to that we were talking about on our summer preview podcast. So before we we started off with specifically going into any of these movies, are you happy with the summer so far? I think, um, you know, uh, a May that has movies like The Avengers, Age of Ultron, and Mad Max Fury Road is, is I think, worth being happy about. Um, you know, some of the big studio movies that have come out um, have have been pretty disappointing, but the ones that I've liked, I've found that I've really, really enjoyed quite a bit. Um, you know, I guess the one disappointment I've got is that May and June have both been uh, fairly slow uh, with uh, indie releases and platform releases. In fact, um, the two most significant uh, platform releases so far, sort of antidotes to the ten poles, uh, have been Far From the Matting Crowd, which I haven't seen yet, and Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson biopic, which I saw a few months back in Nashville. Um, that's a really good one, by the way. But um, but so far, um, you know, even if the studio movies have been kind of a mixed bag, as I said, the ones that have been good have been very, very good. So it's kind of hard to feel disappointed. You know, it's not all about quantity, I suppose. Yeah, to quote the movie that you were so looking forward to this year, Entourage, or at least an episode from it. <laughs> no indies, Corey. This is summertime. Who cares about the indies? We want to see stuff blow up. And I know oh, stuff boy. doesn't blow up in Love and Mercy, other, other than maybe the relationship between Brian and Murray Wilson. But look, I, I'm I'm pretty pleased with what we've gotten so far with, with the Temple stuff. And obviously that starts with Avengers Age of Ultron, which I thought was a ton of fun. And then, obviously, the the week after Mad Max Fury Road, I mean, good Lord. I mean, we kind of saw that coming. It was one of our most anticipated of the year. But I think that we, along with everyone else who couldn't wait to see it and people who were surprised by it, were kind of blown away by what George Miller had been saving up for so many years. And I assume that's one of the big highlights of the summer so far for you. But let's get into specifics right now, Corey. What what has been the best movie you've seen this summer so far? I mean, it is, of course, Mad Max Fury Road, which uh, is also my favorite film of the year so far. Um, and uh, it's a it's a, a high watermark. I think it's going to be tough to to uh, live up to. Uh, specifically, you know, it has that uh, tendency to make every other action movie I've seen recently feel like it's just coming up way short. George Miller, in returning to the to the world of, of Mad Max that he created in, in 1979 and last uh, visited 30 years ago in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, uh, sort of redefines the action tentpole, not by radically altering the... Uh, you know, the grammar of the action movie. There's nothing in here that's radically new. Instead, sort of repurposing uh, old language, 
old cinematic language that has sort of fallen out of style. Uh, you look at Mad Max Fury Road, and you not only see something, you know, the, the language that uh, Miller created in The Road Warrior uh, in 1982. I mean, you see uh, DNA in Mad Max Fury Road that you can trace back to the films of Buster Keaton, of, of Harold Lloyd, old school stunts, um, the geography of which are immaculately planned and conveyed to an audience with just amazing uh, camera work and framing. Uh, and uh, to connect all of that, you have a bare bones but still completely compelling story that um, conveys so much through so little. I mean, so much has been made of, of the fact that that the character of Max in this movie, played by Tom Hardy, is, is a man of so few words. Um, but even in saying those few words, I mean, so much is communicated, and, and that's what I feel Mad Max Fury Road does does incredibly well. Um, I mean, for me, it's going to be an amazing summer if if this is not, you know, the high-water mark of the summer. It's interesting that you mentioned Buster Keaton, and, and I think of Tom Hardy's performance as being a big strength of the movie, actually, and, and I, his physical performance especially, because like you mentioned, he, he's a man of few words, but especially early on during the, the early narration and then when he's captured by the war boys and he's running away from them and, and when he's attached to the car during the first big chase sequence, there, he says so much in his physical performance that there's yeah. just such a, a great story being told, the sense of urgency and tension and chaos that he delivers with these just jittery and desperate movements in his performance, which I think is just fantastic and just shows you why he's one of the best actors working today when you know he says a lot in a movie like The Dark Knight Rises or Locke or when he says very little in something like this. So I'm with you. I mean, like you said, we're not seeing like the advent of a new kind of action. We're seeing someone revisit what action was at some point and what it could be even yeah. still. And, and George Miller is a guy who I, I think deserves a lot of credit for sort of sticking to his gun. And we, we live in an age of reboots and remakes and sequels where, you know, guys like us can get tired of that every, every so often. But I think it's different here with the fourth movie in this Mad Max installment where George Miller seemingly with this film and this budget and, and the technologies at his disposal, is finally able to tell this story the way perhaps he had always envisioned in doing so. And it always bugged me in the marketing when it would, the, 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 the graphics would say, from mastermind George Miller. And I just thought, right. wow, George, you've got to think a lot of yourself, don't you, buddy? I mean, it's been a few years since Lorenzo's Oil, but come on, but now that we're watching this Mad Max movie that he's been waiting to deliver us, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue, and, you know, I think that there are going to be detractors, and there's going to be some kind of Mad Max backlash soon, where people sort of take a breath and say, wait, are we overrating Mad Max nope. code a little bit? I mean, are we that nope. impressed by, you know, the occasional <laughs> practical effect on screen and a real car crashing, or is it as good as everybody has said it is? I'm on the latter. I think it's as good as everybody has said it is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's so much more to it, though, than the stunts. I mean, stunts are one thing, but sort of the sustained, uh, the sustained uh, orchestra of stunts just over and over again, uh, where everything uh, comes together so brilliantly, and you always know 
where characters are and what they're doing and what their motivations are. I mean, I'm a big fan of The Avengers Age of Ultron, but in that regard, Mad Max Fury Road makes uh, The Avengers Age of Ultron look like a you know, uh, something some kid scrawled with a crayon. Oh, come on, come on. Okay, let's stop there then. Okay, Because I think that the backlash for Avengers obviously has so much to do with sort of the shock and awe administered by the Mad Max Fury Road action. And again, seeing what an action movie can be if it doesn't rely fully or even heavily on CG. And that, that is not to say that there is not CG in Mad Max Fury Road. There's actually no, a lot there. of it. There is a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of it. But, I mean, compared to something like Avengers, it's pretty seamless and invisible at times. It's just used beautifully. But now, I, I, I meant specifically in its storytelling. I think there's an elegance to the storytelling of Mad Max and sort of, uh, you know, the clarity and focus of Mad Max that the Avengers does not have. I really like the Avengers. Uh, I, I want to make that clear. The Avengers is a lot of fun. It, it's a totally different movie, uh, but I think you know if you're boiling down an action movie to its absolute bare minimum, that's Mad Max, and, and The Avengers is something completely different. So you weren't disappointed in The Avengers? No, I was a big fan of it. Um, I don't think it's as good as the first one, but I'd put it in. Well, I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of these Marvel movies. Um, these Marvel movies, ultimately, you know, I, I think I'm probably less critical of these Marvel movies than most people even have been lately. There's only one of them, I'd say, the first Thor, that I'm not really crazy about. Everything else, I mean, even the maligned um, Iron Man 2 and even the sort of forgotten Incredible Hulk, I think are a lot of fun. Um, this is uh, more of the same. Um, which is not a bad thing. Um, uh, you know, again, what it's what it's lacking in sort of the initial thrill that you get in that first Avengers movie of seeing them team up, uh, it makes up for in some pretty outstanding uh, action set pieces um, and more of that great uh, Joss Whedon uh, team building uh, humor and, and scenarios. Um, I, you know, I'm a really big fan of it. I've seen it a couple times now. Um, and I really like sort of the new elements added in this movie, whether it's James Spader's uh, sarcastic Ultron, um, uh, the the uh, twins, the Maximoff twins. I, this is one of the first times I've actually legitimately liked Aaron Taylor Johnson in something. So that's no small feat right there. Uh, and then, of course, the character that Paul Bettany plays, uh, who was introduced in the third act. Uh, everybody in the world seen this movie, but just in case, I'm not going to say too much about him um you know it, it's it's just it's one of the purest uh translations of comic book style action we have seen in a film yet and for that reason uh i'm a really big fan of it i had a blast with it i did too i, I totally had a blast i think it's top half marvel cinematic universe stuff and i love what they did with iron man in this movie, I thought it was the best portrayal of Iron Man since the first Iron Man movie, and I'm a fan of Iron Man too, actually. And uh, you know, Thor had just had such a great action and comedic presence this time around. I thought that they m- matched what they brought with the Hulk in the first movie. And you know, I'm I'm, I'm with you. I'm not I'm not sure that it's the movie that the first Avengers movie is, 
just in terms of how they developed all these characters, created such a great dynamic, and and found a way to first introduce so you know so many beloved and iconic comic book characters on the screen at the same time. I think so much credit. You know, you got to give so much credit to Josh Whedon for just accomplishing that with the first movie, anyway. But just strictly from an action set piece standpoint, starting the movie off with these guys, these guys, and obviously the Black Widow in action from the word go was just such a great way to kick it off. And I think, like in the moment, I thought I like this better because it's not Nick Fury and Kobe Smulders, you know, chasing a pickup truck during the first you know, a few minutes of the movie to set it all up. It's the actual Avengers in motion doing their thing. And yeah, yeah it, I thought it was wonderful. And, you know, the whole movie played out so well. There's just so many great comedic moments, most of which the best ones involving Thor's hammer, just which got huge laughs. In oh, the definitely. Theater, you know, yeah. including from me. So I, I really dug it and I can't wait to watch it again. It's what summer movies are all about. Sometimes I'm, I'm disappointed that we don't get a movie like that in the direct center of the summer movie schedule we kick it off and then it you know kind of feels like it's all downhill from here mad max fury road proved that wrong and i think we've got a few on the slate coming up that that could do that too and and make this an all-around great summer i think it's really strong so far i mean i i saw san andreas this past weekend Corey, have you caught up with that one yes i have and i i you know i like the rock i'm a fan of his early work you know in the squared circle as opposed to you know, a lot of what he's done, uh, you know, in movies. And I'm just waiting for that big movie for The Rock where it establishes him as the great action movie star. And I think we've gotten glimmers of that in his early filmography, but I'm still waiting for him to really establish himself as the go-to guy for action tentpole. And I think that it's still on the horizon for him. I'm not sure San Andreas is that movie, but I still think San Andreas is ridiculous summer fun. It's all-out stupid stuff, but The Rock is really sincere and, and really works, even though, you know, I'm not sure that you need a muscle-bound hero for a movie like this. I mean, what, what's interesting, Corey, is that you have this juxtaposition where you've got The Rock, this muscle-bound action movie hero, and you've also got Paul Giamatti co-starring as this scientist who's trying to give people proper warning about all these earthquakes happening up and down uh, the, the California coastline. And I just wonder... Couldn't San Andreas have worked with Paul Giamatti as the star of it? Yes, or you know, even better, um, focus that movie on sort of the survival on, on the street level um, of Alexandra Daddario, who plays The Rock's daughter, who's trapped in San Francisco as uh, her father takes uh, helicopters, automobiles, planes, boats. <laughs> Uh, pretty much every vehicle possible to save her. Um, you know, I, I think an interesting movie would have centered on the fact that, you know, The Rock in that movie, who is um, uh, a, a first responder, a rescuer, whose job it is in disasters to rescue uh, civilians, um, you know, is busy doing his job while his daughter is forced to fend for himself. Instead, the movie that we get is, is The Rock sort of abandoning his job uh, to save his estranged uh, wife and daughter. Uh, I'm not a fan of San Andreas. Um, San Andreas is uh, a lot of uh, video game-style spectacle in search of characters and a story. 
um, and anything sort of compelling to hang your hat on. Um, Paul Giamatti, as you said, who plays the uh, uh, exposition spewing earthquake expert, <laughs> ultimately uh, is only involved in sort of, I guess, his first scene there at the uh, the Hoover Dam uh, and then does honestly very little else other than say like portentous things throughout the movie. I mean, there's there's really nothing for him to do. And The Rock, um, though he is more active, doesn't fare much better. Uh, the movie is, is just increasingly ridiculous. Uh, as far as spectacle goes, I think once you see the first scene um, with a building collapsing, you've seen everything the movie has to offer. Yeah, it, you know, ridiculous is okay, though, in the summertime, especially in this, like, Roland Emmerich, like disaster spectacle, I, I just think it's kind of a weird casting choice to, to have The Rock play a, a you know rescue pilot in the midst of this chaos that his muscles can't do anything about. You know, it reminds right. me of that Ron White joke where if a Volvo hits you, it doesn't really matter how many sit-ups you did that morning. You know, right? right. And, and I mean, that's what I thought. But I like The Rock; he's so likable. And he's so earnest on screen that he pulls it off. And, you know, I hear all of this about, you know, he abandons his job. He doesn't – he actually helps a lot of people in this movie. His daughter uses the resources that she obviously gleaned from him as a father to help other people and get herself out of precarious situations. And, mm-hmm. you know, it made me think, like, if you know, for instance, my wife or kid, if I was, you know, uh, several miles away from them when something like this was happening, w- w- would your first thought be – let me let me hop in my chopper and you know you know help a bunch of people out and I'm sure that that would be a thought that crossed your mind but I'm guessing the first thought would be oh God I need to help my wife and kids you know and 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 make sure they're okay and save them so I, I understand the instinct and and you know his desire to do that but I, I don't know I think that there is a little bit of unfair criticism that this movie focuses too largely on. A, a small group of people helping themselves out instead of other people. I mean, you have the Paul Giamatti character to do that. The entire purpose of his character is to find a way to warn the masses, and he yeah, does he, that successfully. You know, I, I I don't know that 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 criticism is fair, but what I will say is that, you know, as in in the Roland Emmerich movies, which are you know I I like a lot of those because they're so ridiculous and so silly and over the top, like 2012 or something like that. But this is better here. than 2012. No, it's not. And yeah, this is it. why. Uh, there, there are two main reasons why. One, Roland Emmerich, you know, even though his characters are completely ridiculous, uh, you know, he actually bothers to have characters. I don't know that San Andreas, uh, I don't think that's anything you could, you could look at in, in San Andreas and say, uh, you know, is truthful. Um, these these people are very very thinly sketched. And second, uh, said characters there is a large enough uh, pool of them that uh, invariably people that we actually like or have spent time with are in imminent danger of death. In San Andreas, uh, you know, we we have what four characters, and we absolutely know that nothing bad is going to happen to any of them. So so you have, I mean, you have our main characters, you know they're all safe, and then you have faceless, 
you know, hordes of screaming masses, and, and after a while it just gets boring. I prefer my hordes of screaming masses to be faceless, Corey. That's just me. Well, I don't sure, want to get to know them. I don't want to get to know them and get connected to them. I need no emotional attachment to these people who are going to... But, I mean, that's what makes, like, something like uh, the Poseidon Adventure work or, you know, any of these other disaster movies, uh, Independence Day, I don't know. Uh, these movies that actually bother to have human character-based stakes instead of just, you know, vague, grand pronouncements. You know, this doesn't mean anything. It just, you know, it's, it's just, just kind of faceless destruction for the sake of it. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah. And and well, after a while, that 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 kind of got boring. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's a pretty simple story of, you know, father must rescue, reconnect with, you know, wife rescue daughter. I mean, there's, it's not, you know, it's not, it's certainly not rocket science or rocket science. But, you know, I, I, I like I said, I just find the rock to be a likable screen presence. He's a movie star that I root for to succeed. I want to see more of him. I want a movie like San Andreas to, to do well, even though I, I find the timing of its release or, or production even questionable. I just I don't know that we needed an earthquake movie right now. I'm not right. sure how relevant it is. And obviously it has a different kind of relevance with the tragedy in Nepal. And, and you know, that, that was unfortunate, uh, you know, for it, obviously, not that that matters at all, but I, still, if it's here, I'm going to watch it just because it's The Rock and, you know, just because it, it has special effects that I, I found amazing. I thought they did a good job with it, but like you said, I, you know, I tend to agree with you that, okay, if, if we can do this, then let's use it for good or better and let's perhaps tell uh, a more complex story than we are here, but, you know, I, I, I still enjoyed the you know, the sheer spectacle and fun of it. And it's funny, too, the Paul Giamatti character. Yeah, he's, you know, I like Paul Giamatti, too, and he's not much more than sort of a, a South Park action movie archetype, you know. Right. I, I don't know how many ways he can say, God help us all, and, and transition <laughs> into the next big, you know, earthquake or, or seismic event. But, okay, we're a little split on San Andreas. That's okay. I saw Cameron Crowe's new movie Aloha uh, a couple of you know days ago, a couple of weeks ago, I guess. I'm one of the speaking of disasters. It's not disastrous, no. And and that I want to stop myself from saying that it's underrated because it's not particularly good. You know, it it has its moments of of, you know heartwarming human you know rediscovery of humanity and 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 you know. Typically, what you find in Cameron Crowe movies these days, it's nowhere near as poignant as Almost Famous or as entertaining as Jerry mm-hmm. Maguire, but it's not as terrible as everybody says it is. And, and I think it's just a good, it's a good opportunity to pile on Cameron Crowe, who is on a cold streak like no other, you know, from a director in his class. And I, I talked with, you know, somebody recently about directors losing their fastball. And this is a topic that you and I have explored on the show before. Right. And, and Cameron Crowe is obviously a guy who sadly finds himself in this category now here with this streak of Elizabethtown, we bought a zoo, and now Aloha. And it's, you know, if anything, it's just sad that we don't have the same Cameron Crowe we did with those first several movies that we still cherish to this day, but it doesn't change the fact that he's the guy who made those. I mean, he's not George Lucas or anything. And, you know, there, again, there are these faint moments where 
you're watching Aloha, which is, you know, annoying in, in spurts, but you see little moments where you think, oh, this is the Cameron Crowe that I want, and this is the Cameron Crowe that I know is still capable of doing something like this. But you're a big Bradley Cooper fan, much more so than I. I mean, it's hard to, you know, sadly, in, in, in ways, it's hard to make him very likable, especially when you have him play who is, you know, an asshole from the word go and, and getting a guy like Bradley Cooper to pull, you know, a 180 with a character like that in a romantic comedy where, you know, he has Emma Stone and Rachel McAdams batting their eyes at him from beginning to end. It's, you know, it's hard to root for a lot of these characters, but there are little bits and pieces of the Cameron Crowe that we know and love. It's not the unmitigated disaster everybody says it is. Well, that's good to know. I, I haven't seen it yet, and I, it's still despite all of the naysaying uh, on my agenda. Yeah, well, you know, there there are definitely moments where it just sort of like flounders in, in its own, you know, grandiosity, and, and, you know, it has these, like, Cameron Crowe musings that are found in Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous, even, where he probably, you know, talks a little too much, and, you know, the philosophy just sort of, like, bleeds into the story a little, uh, you know, a bit much, but whatever. You saw the Melissa McCarthy comedy Spy, which yes. is so poised to be a hit. It's R-rated. It's from Paul Feig. It's their third movie together. People seem to like it. Do you? I do like it. Um, I think it's it's very funny uh, and a surprisingly uh, respectful takeoff on, on sort of the spy movie genre. You know, it's it, it's not really a spy spoof. It's it's just a comedy that takes place uh, in that setting, much like, um, and this is a movie that, that I think I thought uh, was better than you did, much like um, Paul Feig and Melissa McCarthy's previous uh, pairing, The Heat, uh, was not really a cop spoof, but rather just a, a cop comedy. Um, but, but Spy, I think, is better than The Heat. I think it's funnier than The Heat. Um, I think, uh, you know, while it is a little bit messy in, in the way that these Paul Feig movies and a lot of modern comedies have been, um, it's also, uh, you know, inclined, as a lot of spy movies are, to get lost in its own sort of labyrinthine plotting of double crosses and uh, uh, double agents and um, secret identities and so forth. There's a lot of that, and... Um, you know, it, it just so happens to be a story uh, featuring probably the world's most unlikely uh, secret agent, as played by Melissa McCarthy. Um, one of the things I like so much about Spy is that, you know, McCarthy has been leaning on uh, a comic persona in her films of, of this sort of brash, hyper-confident woman, um, you know, not only in in the heat, but in Bridesmaids, and then also lesser movies uh, like Tammy and Identity Thief. Um, Spy finds her in a, in a somewhat different situation. Uh, as the movie begins, she's this sort of meek CIA analyst who, through circumstances, is actually forced to go out into the field. Uh, the difference is, um, you know, despite her meekness, she's also incredibly capable um, she just has to discover that uh, sort of confidence as as the movie progresses. So it's essentially a classic underdog story with McCarthy uh, as the very likable center. And um, you know that that's a lot of fun. But but Paul Feig does what Paul Feig does and stacks the deck with amazing 
supporting uh, comic actors, um, Allison Janney, uh, Peter Serafinowicz, um, and of course some comic MVPs like um, Rose Byrne, who's absolutely hysterical here as, as, as one of the antagonists, and uh, Jason Statham, who is incredibly funny, not in a way that we didn't know he could be because you know, the early Guy Ritchie movies and the Crank movies have shown he can be a comic actor. It's just been a while, and it's fun to see him sort of puncture that super stoic, badass persona that he plays off of in most of his movies. So I'd say, you know, yeah, Spy is is certainly uh, extremely successful in what what it wants to do, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing it for a second time. Well, I plan to see it and find out for myself, but a big question that I have about it going into it is, does it need to be R-rated? Yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's actually pretty violent. Um, there's some, you know, it has, um, it has its moments of, of, of violence and of course, uh, cursing, um, which is how it gets its R rating. You know, I, I guess if, if, um, you don't find Melissa McCarthy being, uh, Profane, particularly funny, then you might question that. But but I always tend to for some reason. So the R rating works for me. Okay. Well, I saw the Entourage movie, Corey. I don't know. Did you skip it? You didn't seem too enthused about it on our preview. Yeah, I doubt very much that I'll ever see it. Did you watch the show? No, not really. I watched season one. And you just turned off if you weren't into yeah, it? Yeah, I, I bailed. I wasn't into it at all. Well, I understand why people aren't into it, I guess, but I, I watched the show and I saw the movie and, you know, I, I liked the show enough, obviously, to put money down and go see it. And what I'll tell people is if you watched and liked the show, the movie is exactly like it and you will like the movie. And, and you know, what I don't understand, Corey, is you may have uh, very specific and different reasons for this, but... Entourage was a, a critically and commercially successful show, and it had a long run. Some people think maybe a little too long, and I, I just find it strange where the show was loved and you know maybe liked by by so many back during its initial run on HBO, which ended four years ago. How in the last four years it seems like there has been another one of these backlashes that has just developed seemingly out of thin air for this show. And, and it seems like the the words douchey and bro-y have just become so synonymous with entourage. And I'm not necessarily going to disagree with the word that, you know, those descriptors, but I just wonder where was all of this hate and vitriol for the show entourage back when it was on compared to what's happening now. I mean, there's not a lot to say about the movie itself other than it's like the show. It's just sort of, the, the, you know, more adventures with Vince, Eric, Drama, and Turtle, you know, with even more cameos than I guess we're used to during a season run of it. But I just, you know, I, I just am kind of scratching my head where, you know, four years ago and, and beyond, people seemed to like this, and then all of a sudden, people, it's become a punching back for people. I, yeah, you know, I can't really speak to that. You know, I, I, I know that I have this sort of, uh, recoiling uh, when I think about you know spending any time you know in a movie theater with that film playing, um, so it's uh, yeah it's one of those things that that I didn't care for on the small screen based on somewhat limited experience. So I'm, I'm I 
don't think I'll be seeing the film. Well, just tell me what turns you off so hard about it. I don't particularly care for that brand of predominantly masculine wish fulfillment. Uh, uh, it, it sort of turns me off, um, this idea. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how accurate this is, but but of uh, sort of conspicuous consumerism, um, sort of uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous uh, aspirations and... and um, I mean, yeah, just the bro culture that it seems to embody, whether accurately or not. I mean, you know, the perception is that it is uh, uh, sort of a bro story, and and I'm not I'm not into that. Yeah, well, you know, I think the show and, and the movie, to an extent, actually has some art and and some substance. I mean, I say some. For sure, I want to emphasize that. But, I mean, it, it started out as a true underdog story and nobody rising to fame in Hollywood and having career ups and downs, more downs than ups, actually, challenges. Somebody who, uh, you know, a star who is not reliable, who flakes out on productions and the consequences that he faces as a result of that. I mean, I, I think that what might, might turn people off about it is that things tend to work out for this character and those consequences <coughs> don't last very long. And, and fame and fortune seem to find them, you know, find him once again. And that, you know, I guess you know you want you want your hero to succeed, but you want him to learn something in the process. And you know, I'm not sure that's what everybody wants to watch, especially like you said, the travails of lifestyle, you know, the the, the rich and famous. But I one thing I can recommend, and something that holds up in the movie and revisiting the show leading up to the movie. Jeremy Piven is an animal on this show and is outstanding and deserved every Emmy he got. And I highly recommend watching it just for the energy and intensity that he brought to it. I mean, the character I know is somebody that some people can't stand, but I think he was designed that way. And it's just this monstrous Hollywood agent who will, who will stop at nothing to make sure that his client gets as rich as possible and I think that's an interesting look, inside look at the industry. And I think that that is what appeals to me most about this show is that I do think it provides some insight into how the industry works at the highest possible level. And a lot of the humor sort of falls flat, and the characters can get unlikable at times. But if you're if you're interested in Hollywood and and how the business works to some degree then I can recommend it. And also, Kevin's performance is just outstanding. So, Corey, that's where I've stopped up to this point. I missed Poltergeist. I missed Pitch Perfect 2. Uh, there there are one or two that fell through the cracks. I know that you saw and liked Insidious 3, but yes. <laughs> out of out of these other sort of lesser known, not really lesser known, but just not, not as, you know, marketed down our throats titles as the ones I just mentioned, anything else really stand out to you? Um, well, one more thing. Uh, did you see Brad Bird's Tomorrowland? Oh, God. That, yeah, see, I think that that might say everything about it. Yeah. The fact that I forgot it. But no, yes, I did see Tomorrowland, Corey, and I liked it. I liked the first hour especially. thought that was outstanding. But once the movie started saying what it really wanted to say and the climax and, and the closing moments, I, I don't think it fell on its face. I just think it got a little caught up and didn't really know where to go from there. But I did like it, and I just wish the best for Brad Bird in live action. 
Um, I thought it was quite bad. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I liked. I mean, it has moments here and there, um, but uh, you know, I, I wish that that if Brad Bird were going to, um, you know, make a, a movie that that with, with a theme, with a message that he is so passionate about, you know, he'd have a plot that made any amount of sense to go with it. Um, you know, the theme, the things the movie is saying, that's something that, that seems uh, interesting, that's something that seems to need to be said, or Brad Bird thinks it needs to be said. Um, and, you know, there are moments, as you said, the closing moments, um, the last couple of minutes of the movie, I think, are wonderful. Uh, it's just everything, you know, getting there and sort of building this world somewhat um, haphazardly and half-heartedly uh, that I, I think the movie uh, fails considerably. You know, it's it's um, it's a chase movie where uh, you don't know why the people are running and you don't know why the other people are chasing people and you don't know where they're going um, until, you know, there are 20 minutes left in the movie and even then you don't really know. There, you know, there's, there's an attempt to shroud, I think, a lot of what the movie is doing in mystery um, that just doesn't work, and then the mystery is not followed through on. I mean, small wonder uh, that Tomorrowland is is co-written um, by by Damon Lindelof. Um, yeah, I've had with Damon Lindelof's work, uh, not only his film writing, but but also Lost, um, pretty much from from Jump Street. So, uh, you know, you just you you look at a guy like that who has done some great stuff I and mean, a lot of Lost is really terrific, but, uh, you know, everything seems to lack a degree of follow-through. I mean, a lot yeah. of problems I have with Tomorrowland, I had with, with something like Prometheus or Star Trek Into Darkness. The, the details don't add up. So it's it's a shame because, you know, I, I love Brad Bird. I, I liked parts of Tomorrowland. I really wanted to like Tomorrowland, and it just didn't happen. Yeah, uh, Lindelof's theme, I guess, in his career now is just the journey and the chase are so exciting, but they just far too out. You know, they just they just outweigh the destination and and you know are, are far superior to where you end up with those stories and the titles that you just mentioned, except for Star Trek Into Darkness, which is a really fun movie. But yeah, with Tomorrowland, I I just had such a blast with the first hour of it and and the building of that world, but. Once they got to where they were going and, and met the Hugh Laurie character who, who indulges in the very practice that Brad Bird so exquisitely made fun of in The Incredibles by yep. monologuing for yep. the, the last 30 minutes of the movie, it was just a shame, for sure. And I, I didn't really care for where it ended up. And I didn't really care for the closing minutes of the movie that you just mentioned. I thought it looked like a Super Bowl commercial or something. But... <laughs> What I like about it is that it is a, an original film that celebrates creativity and diversity. And it's important for a, a big studio tentpole movie to explore themes like that and to give Brad Bird opportunities to do so with the largest possible scale and budget. They just need <laughs> maybe another another uh, touch-up on the script, maybe. I don't know. I You know... It had a lot of potential. It's got more heart than you know any any movie to come out this year, perhaps. But yeah, just it, I think you have to qualify it as a misfire. Yeah, I think so too. Um, as far as as sort of the the smaller titles, um, as as you just mentioned, I um, 
you know, I recently caught up with two um, two films that I that are now on video on demand uh, that I think are going to appeal quite a bit to uh, horror fans. Uh, the first is a classic haunted house uh, horror movie called We Are Still Here, uh, a feature debut um, starring Barbara Crampton and. Um, Oh, who else is in it? Larry Fessenden's in it. Lisa Marie. Uh, you know, genre people. Um, but uh, it's a, it's a Lucio Fulci inspired haunted house movie that ends up being a great gory blast. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. The other one, which is perhaps a little bit uh, more high minded, is uh, Rodney Asher's new documentary, The Nightmare which I think has been hyped up since it premiered maybe at Sundance this year, a documentary about sleep paralysis and uh, the hallucinations that can sometimes afflict sufferers of sleep paralysis. Um, this is a very real phenomenon. Uh, it's something I've experienced personally. Um, I've not experienced hallucinations to the degree of, of the ones depicted in this film, but, but Asher interviews uh, about 10, I think, sufferers of sleep paralysis. And during those, those filmed interviews, he dramatizes the often terrifying, very lucid nightmares uh, that they experienced. Um, and the result is one of the just most viscerally frightening documentaries I think ever made. Uh, it's very, very fascinating. And it's one that's, that's certainly not for the faint of heart. Uh, it, it, it'll make you extremely uncomfortable, but it's well worth seeing. Right on. I, yeah, I saw the trailer for that yesterday, actually, and it looks pretty terrifying, and I can't wait to catch up with it. So that you know that that, that should do it, Corey. You know, there, there's a lot of summer left. We've got pretty much all of June and in July and August to look forward to. And, and right now on my calendar, still, we talked about our most anticipated in the preview show, but. Inside Out, the new Pixar movie, and, and Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation are just really staring at me from the calendar, and, and I'm hearing such great things about Inside Out. Obviously, yeah, people and, love and, Inside Out. Yeah, it just it just makes me yeah it makes me think we're really in for something special from Pixar again, and I just can't wait. I know you're looking forward to those. Are there any more that you're, you're more excited about excited about now that you've had some more time to sort of you know soak in the schedule? Um, I think, you know, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot more of it uh, in the last few weeks, but I think, um, you know, Ant-Man, the next Marvel movie, is still promising. Um, you know, the behind-the-scenes drama notwithstanding, I think the, the finished product, or I hope the finished product, is going to be uh, worth seeing. I, I've got hopes for that one. Um, also, um, you know, since it's sort of indifferent, generally polite premiere it can. Um, I, I'm pretty excited for Irrational Man. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Woody and Joaquin together. Um, and uh, one that was not really on my radar, but with the uh, recent trailer, it, it kind of uh, kind of looks a lot more interesting um, and potentially something of a sleeper hit than I think uh, I would have given it credit for is uh, straight out of content. I think yeah. that's like a lot of fun. I believe I had that. I was excited for it. I still am. I can't wait. 
Oh, Paul and um, yeah, more Paul Giamatti with another fun wig. Exactly. Um, also, uh, the new Noah Baumbach film, uh, Mistress America, the trailer for that just debuted a couple days ago, and uh, that looks like a whole lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Any excitement for Jurassic World? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm trying to trying to temper my expectations for that, um, but of course, you know, there there is of course excitement because I'm still a, a child at heart. Sure. Yeah, I think you know when it comes down to it in the eleventh hour when we're in that theater, we're all going to hope that it's great. <laughs> you yeah. know. So, all right. Well, we'll check back in sooner than later. Check us out at AspectRadioShow.com. Find us on iTunes on Facebook and Twitter at Aspect Radio. Check out FilmNerds.com. The new podcast, Film Nerds Unlimited, is on a tear right now. Almost thirty episodes already in the books. So, I encourage people to check it out. Find Corey's stuff on ArtsBeham.com. Find my stuff on AL.com. Until next week, I am Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft. This is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. Pois o samba está animado, o que eu quero é sambar.